My name is Dave Shulman. I'm Chess President for 2022, and welcome to another conversation with Chess Leadership. Pleased to be joined today by uh, one of my personal mentors and uh, current Chess President designate, Jack Buckley. Jack, thanks for joining us today. I'm going to let you share your mission with uh, your 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 uh, your mission through Chess in a minute. But one of the stories that you often tell that I get a kick out of is how. You, you at least remember, and I remember how we first met and oh, interacted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you want to maybe sh- share a very shortened version of that sure, story? Sure, sure, sure. So um, my whole background's been medical education, and I was uh, a program director um, at the very early part of my career for a while. At a time when being a program director was kind of a task. And, and I it's can not re- now, right? And it's now not it's- now. Oh, <laughs> this, is, this is a bona fide, validated, extraordinarily important career pathway for that's absolutely necessary for our field. But back in the day, a long time ago, it wasn't. It was somebody would get tapped on the shoulder to to uh, be the program director for a fellowship. And so um, I didn't look at it that way. I looked, this is too important. And I wanted to advance that. I wanted to advance that role of a, of a program director and, and being recognized. And I can remember at a, at a conference of program directors for pulmonary critical care, I was asked to lead it. And we were sitting in a group, it was a breakout room, there's probably 20 yeah. people in the room, program directors. And I asked for a show of hands, they said, okay, how many people, how many of people here went up to their boss's uh, office, knocked on the door and told their, their division head, um, I wanna be the program director for the fellowship program. And um, I raised my hand, because that was me, and there was only one other person in the room that raised their hand. <laughs> it was David. And I'm going, oh, I like this guy. I don't know who he is, but I like him. Yeah, I, 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 and I think that just, that, to me, when I look back, that started the ball rolling in, the, in terms of people who really sought to say, this is the, this is the career path I want to go. Uh, I think it was back in 05. I was trying to figure out. Oh, I can't that, remember. That goes back probably 15 or 16 years. Talk to me, because I got to know you first through both of our relationships with the Program Directors Association. Talk to me a little bit about your journey through chest leadership. How'd you first get involved? Because I mean, you're you know you're a big shot now. You'll be president in a couple of years. Understanding the journey is different for different folks. What was yours like? Yeah, it, it was interesting. So when I was in my fellowship, um, I wasn't. And fully engaged with chess or professional societies in general, we would we would get you know the group would go to a big meeting and we'd all come back. But uh, I didn't get involved in chess until I was uh, at Henry Ford Hospital my first time. And at the time, one of the senior partners in the group was Paul Qualley. Yeah. And Paul Qualley, past president of chess, said, "I think you should get more involved. You you're you're a clinician. You love to teach, and this is perfect. Come on to a meeting, and I'll introduce you." And he got me signed up for a leadership course back in the day. And, and that course was Vera De Palma and Lisa, where we talk about it to this day going back, that was probably my first initial exposure to chess. Uh, and uh, boy, that just, everything in there was just easy and natural. And so when was the first time you then ran for a leadership position? You know, certainly you've been on the board, we'll talk about that a little later, but what are the other positions that you've held within the organization? Uh, there's been a number, some of them um, were helping out with a committee on this or an educational project on that. But I probably would think that um, it's all been naturally through the uh, what's now called the Training Transitions Committee. Yeah. Uh, at the time, it was an affiliate network. And this is all about, you know, what we what you and I have historically valued is 
folks in their training and their formal fellowship training? How do you get them involved and engaged in their professional society? And, and how do you help them be successful in their careers? And so that that's what those committees and networks at the time had been focused on. And that was aligned nicely with what I was doing back at my home institution. So that's where I spent most of my time. And then from there, I put my name in the hat for a, a board position and was luckily uh, nominated. And, and, and I was surprised in a way because I, I thought there would be tons of people who would be applying and, and I felt very lucky uh, to get a chance to serve on the board. And that was 2013, 2013, I I uh, right way. about that, which was just following up my year when I was the uh, scientific program committee chair. And so I think that's uh, probably where the chess got to know me better. And, and so once they get to know you better and see what you can do, then they might consider you more strongly for positions so on board. I have to take a minute and tell a funny story, which I don't know that I've ever mentioned this to you, uh -oh. but it, I always get a giggle <laughs> out of it. So you'll remember, and some of our audience may, who are a little bit more senior, that back in the day, and this probably goes to 2016 and before, um, the lead up to the annual meeting, there were, like, there were um, uh, advertisements that the program chairs did. And so you were part of what, it, now you know where I'm gonna go, right? You, you were part of a memorable advertisement in 2012. The meeting was in for Atlanta. Yes, for yes. Atlanta. Yes, I do. Do remember. you remember the, what the advertisement was? I, I do remember the video. So it was the, the meeting was in Atlanta. And as always, we try to embrace local history, culture, and, and, uh, and there was a, an advertising skit on the old movie, Gone with the Wind. So Doreen, who was the program chair at that time, played Scarlett O'Hara, and I was Red Butler. With the little, with the, the little pencil the mustache. Yeah. On, uh, it was actually a piece of tape on, I don't even want to know what it was, but it came in a case, and I used it once, and then it was disposed. Yeah, it was. I think soon after that, they stopped doing skits. I'm not saying it was because your acting was poor. Oh, I, I would. I would that say was, that's true. That I remember that very vividly, and thinking, how did they talk him into doing that <laughs> uh, well, it's part of trying to be in a good sport, right? Uh, some things you do you have to get out of your comfort zone from time to time. So that was fun. Yeah, no, it was looking it, back. It's fun. It was good. I want to get you mentioned the board regions. I want to get back to the minute that in a minute. But you uh, started with with training and transitions, and one of the things, and you opened with this push for education. What is your perspective these days on how junior folks, medical students, residents, fellows, even junior faculty interact with? national organizations like CHESS. How has that changed? And what, if any, advice might you offer? That's a lot of questions tied together. But what, if any, advice might you offer to young folks to, who are trying to figure out, like, is this a thing that I should get involved in? I'm so busy with my home institution. What are the benefits of something like that? So it's a ton of questions. We can tackle them in whatever order you want. Yeah, I'm going to start with the second one first. And, and is, what, should, should people get involved with their professional side? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think all of us as professionals need to be engaged, not with what we do just day to day, but also on <clears throat> working with your professional society to advance your profession. It's like the old rule at work. So everybody has two jobs. Number one, get your job done. Number two, make your job better. And I would argue through a professional society, uh, that is one of the ways that a lot of us can help make our jobs and our roles and what we do and our impact, which is the bottom line. How do you help patients? How do we do that better? And working with your professional society is probably one of the most important ways to do that. So I think that's extremely important. Now, um, how do you get involved with your professional society? I think 
what's fun to watch is over the last 20 years, the number of opportunities, and it doesn't always seem that way when you're in this role for medical students, residents, and fellows to get involved is so much better now than what it was. That used to be, you would stand on the sidelines and hear about national meetings here and there and watch your professors and attending physician teachers go off to these meetings, come back, and they learn about all this new stuff, the cutting edge stuff, and you just wonder, oh, okay, am I gonna get tested on that or something like that? Um, but it was a big, it was like a black box, what's inside, you didn't know. And, and then when you first get your chance to go to a national meeting, um, it's a lot of fun. It's just a whole new world. It's different types of stuff going on. And, uh, but as a, you feel like a, you're a, not a, um, you're a participant, you're an attendee, but you're not engaged in influencing how things go. Now we have opportunities uh, for fellows to be involved, not just on giving presentations, but sitting on committees and playing important roles. Residents get invited, even medical students. So when we travel, to all of our national meetings now, we reach out to local medical schools saying, hey, free admission to the meeting, free attendance to any medical students want to come in and present and present a subject, right. you know, submit a poster. Meet leadership, play Meet, around in the simulation center absolutely. for yeah. Just get a little dose of what it is. And it, it's, it's a blast. We get wonderfully positive feedback from those folks. So I love those opportunities. And that just gives folks an idea of what goes on at national meetings. And, and maybe start to make some connections and, and see if that's something that they want to do more rigorously when they are finished with their formal training. You touched on a topic which I, I want to dig a little deeper on, which is the second part of the job, which is to make the job better. I think particularly over the last couple of years um, and even preceding COVID, there's an increasing sense from faculty, and it may be the case in private practice as well, I don't know how to change things. Like the job is tough. It's a bit of a grind. Like I think my colleagues have my back. I worry a little bit about the healthcare system, not necessarily being as supportive of individual level people. And they just sort of, they withdraw. They say, I don't think I can change things. You're a division director now. So I knew you back when you were program director, you sort of moved up the ladder to division director. How, how can people lower in, the, lower in the levels of leadership try to do that second part of the job? What are the, what are the and I know it's a hard question, but what are the advice? What advice might you offer to somebody who sees opportunities to make things better, but doesn't know how to operationalize those ideas? It depends on what the idea is and how you're going to operationalize it. And I don't have the answers for every single path, but I think it does start with um, a sense of uh, belief in that you know this this is this could be better. Whether it's you know this treatment, this way we structure things, this way we approach diagnostic problems. This could be better. We have enough. There's enough science out there that tells us this could be better. So how do we make this better? How do I influence that? Um, it needs just because we're doing the same thing, or, or what you don't want is to be doing the same thing in 20 years that you're doing today. So let's let's think about that for a moment. And where do we want to be? And how do we get there? And I think you got to speak up. You got to submit ideas, and you got to be willing to try something new, and advocate for something that you believe in. Um, and, it, and, and sometimes that's calling out things that should probably be stopped and go away and put it aside. No, we've done that. Let's move on. We need to, that's not work. We tried it. We tried it. It's not working. Let's, let's do something different. And you have to be willing to do that. And it kind of comes back to being, uh, I don't know, you have to, I, and this, maybe this is just personal, but I, you know, we all reflect on how we're doing in terms of, um, our own 
professional development. And what I learned about myself is fairly early on is I do better when I am being more honest, authentic about who I am and what's important to me. And, and that freedom to be more authentic or that need for me to be more authentic is extremely important um, because that helps fulfill my sense of purpose, right? It's, it's like the uh, things that you need for a, a satisfying career. You, you want a sense of purpose and you want to work with fun people, good people. Those two things, yeah, those two things, you're going to have, you're going to have a fulfilling career. And so uh, it's that sense of purpose and being able to identify that. Now, in medicine, it's, it's fascinating. I would argue it shouldn't be too hard to find a sense of purpose. And in fact, for folks who struggle with that, there's usually something else going on that's getting in the way. So if you can just always kind of put that why you're there, what you're trying to accomplish, or the big picture, little picture, doesn't matter as long as you have a sense of purpose that drives you. And let that, let that take you to wherever you're going to go and, and helps you accomplish what you want to accomplish. I love what you've said, and I, and I think it actually ties back to the chest mission a bit because I, one of the privileges of getting a little older, being a little more senior, is we have a little bit more of an ability to speak truth to power this without is ramifications. This is true. A bit more junior. <laughs> but I think when you come to a place like chest where you can speak to folks like us or other people in leadership, and you know, we're not in charge of your career at home. We can offer counsel. We can try to get the groups together and say, look, this is a persistent problem, not just in your institution, but across your state, across your region, across the country. And, and talking to us doesn't really put any risk to you in terms of local ramifications that might come of speaking truth to power. I, I actually think that's one of the things that in the advocacy space, being part of a, of a, of a national organization, be it Chester or other, has some value there. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and it's exactly those types of things. You have a personal struggle in your that you're working on at your own institution, maybe it's an organ the way it's organized, and um, you go, gosh, am, am I the only one having this problem at my institution? Right. And so you start talking with people at Emory or, or you know other institutions or other big group practices, and you say, is, is you guys encounter this? And what do you do? How do you handle this? I'm, I was asking Steve Simpson about this the other day. Uh, how many patients does an APP in their intensive care unit cover during the day, and how many do they cover at night? I'm going, okay. That's about the same that we do. So maybe we're on track. It's this networking, trying to understand that, hey, you're not doing this alone. Is this normal is or this is this something normal? everybody experiences? Exactly. You could only know that through networking extramurally. And sometimes, as awkward as it might be, you realize that you might be the outlier and you might be thinking you've got it worse when you've got it pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little humbling. And sometimes that, but that's useful for you to know about yourself and, and how you look at things. It's like, okay, maybe I had that wrong. Maybe. You know, and so it helps get you anchored a little bit better, I think. And and really, for me, chess is the best place for that, is is that opportunity, because we have a, a nice diverse group of people in different roles. We have academics, you got uh, geographic distributions, you've got private practice groups, big, small. I, I, I For me, I love running into past fellows that I've That's worked nice. with, um, scattered around the country. and you know, tiny little one, two person groups versus big mega organizations and hearing their stories about what they're doing. Um, that's a lot of fun. And I, and I'll ask them questions. Oh gosh, you're out in the real world. <laughs> Sometimes I worry I get, I get cloistered in, you know, the academic 
you know, culture and, and you, you miss out a little bit on what's going out there. In the, and then talking to them, I'm learning back from them. Yes. And, they, and they seem to like that. They're like, oh, I can finally teach Buckley something. Actually, they've always taught me something. Yeah. They just didn't realize <laughs> they it. They just until... didn't realize it until then. Um, that's always fun. That's always fun. But it does. It's a great way, the networking opportunities, and people talk about this. This, this is one tangible way is, is what you learn from that. Let me turn to the board. So you joined the board in or around 2013. You were a member for six years. You stepped away for a couple of years, and now you're back serving in the president-designate role. Without getting too deep in the weeds, can you give the membership a sense of what does the board do? Like, you know, we meet quarterly or so in person. We'll have a couple of additional phone calls throughout the year. What, what happens therein, and what, what do you think is the most meaningful thing that the board is doing that led you to kind of run for president uh, for 2024, I guess, will be your year? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And I'll, I'll confess that when I first joined the board, I, what I thought the board does and should be doing isn't really, um, isn't, wasn't as accurate as it, as it should have been. And uh, I, I think I understand more about what the board does and why it does that. And that is luckily through that's part of my education in terms of board development. So, uh, the, and the board has changed a bit over the years, not as much as I think it had changed in the 10 years before I started going from 2000 to 2000, I think 13 is when I started. I think the, um, so I step back and go, what does the board do? What's the board, what's the role of the board? Well, the, the role of the board is to set the mission and vision for the organization and outline what we're gonna to try to accomplish. And it really speaks to uh, the cause that we all value and tries to make it into a functional organization that represents the professional interests of our members, but also our duty to our patients and why we're here in the first place. And um, it's the governing body. It oversees how we're gonna do things. It, it, it hires the CEO, it helps Establish the bylaws in terms of how things uh, things of how things should run within the college. It's also uh, the duty of the board to make sure, though, that they are grounded and have a good sense of what's going on in the real world. So it needs to represent diversity of thought and people, so that it is really covering what our society needs. That that's kind of how I look at the role of the board. Um, and then there's certain things that the board shouldn't be doing. <laughs> So yes, the board oversees everything and, and hires a CEO, but the board doesn't make day-to-day -day decisions about how the college runs. Yeah. That's, that, and that's a thing that I think many people who join the board, it's a little difficult recognizing that, what, how does this work? But this is not unique to chess. This is how general nonprofit boards work. Most of us work, or a lot of us work at hospitals that have uh, a health system that are nonprofit organizations, and they're we think, oh, there's the CEO and they make all the calls. Well, that's not quite true. <laughs> there is a board and that CEO is hired and fired by that board uh, and, and they are held accountable to that board. So sometimes- The only person who works for us is the CEO. That's right. That's, he's our only employee as board members. And yeah. and you know, and sometimes we take this back to our home institution and it goes, well, who's on the board at my home institution? It starts getting, you, you start yeah. learning a bit about how how organizations work and their structures, and you get a little insight to what goes on, uh, not just here at the college, but that that's pretty, I think, very transparent 
I think it's more about what goes on at your own institution. You start asking questions. One of the things I've admired about you, and, and there, you know, everybody's got their own features, but one of the things that struck me very early in our relationships is you are someone who is very comfortable speaking against groupthink. Let me clarify that. No, what I mean is, and I'm not always sure that you, I think you are always happy to poke the bear a little bit and question the, 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 the things that everybody else thinks are true. What if that's wrong? Even if you're the only person in the room to, to say that, I think the way you comport yourself certainly lends itself to that. But I, I think that modern society has trended away. I think people are a little hesitant to speak out now like maybe they were five or 10 years ago. And I love that about you, you've sort of maintained that, that sort of willingness to step out a little bit and say, well, what if we did this instead? Or what if you're all, you say it more polite, what if this is all wrong, but actually this is the way we should go instead? A lot of people think that way. I don't know that a lot of people act that way. And any lessons that you might share is that, that have helped you be more comfortable speaking and you know, just, just questioning the, the truths that we all perceive to be, things that we all perceive to be the truths? I think it really comes back to, and I remember the, the first time I ever heard this term a long time ago, group think. What is group think? And that was defined going, oh gosh, we, I see a lot of that. I can't stand it. And because you know there's people sitting, you know there's people gathered together. And what are the chances that everybody here really thinks that yeah, that's I'm 100% there with you. I don't, I don't think that's true. And so part of me that one of my motivators for speaking up is, I want, I want people to be honest and authentic, comes back to this authenticity issue about, about what they really think. And it's an opinion usually, right? It's not a strategy, or maybe it is a strategy, but often it's opinion about something. And the whole purpose to having a group is to get different opinions and different ideas and different perspectives. And so if everybody just wants to latch onto what's popular, well, why have a group? Yeah. Just turn it over to one person. David, you, you stay here, oh, we're all going home. It should not be me. <laughs> I'm the last we're person you should rely upon. So it's a, it's a way, I think, of keeping us all in check and honest with each other. And we should welcome it. We should welcome contrary opinions and thought as a way of challenging our beliefs uh, because we all are we're human. We have limitations in how we process. We have limited experiences. And so how we process and interpret things is, is going to be unique and often isolated until you start sharing. And I, I'm a firm believer, and Gabe Bossett used to always talk about this book he loves, The Wisdom of the Crowd. Um, a group of people is going to come together with much better ideas and thoughts and solutions than at any individual. Yeah. No question. No question. I'll close with just a couple of rapid fire questions just to get to know you a little bit more personally for those who might not know you. Uh, I know, I think I know some of these answers. What um, music act do you, have you seen live? And you're like, that is the best music act I've seen live. Uh, you mean band or play? Anything you, anything you want to share. Get to like, or, you know, I, I was thinking band, but if you have a musical you want to share, that's cool too. Uh, I have a fairly eclectic music uh, interests and tastes. Uh, and I, but I actually, I don't like live concerts. They get too loud. No. I don't know whether I just get sensitive hearing or what. I like listening to loud music, but I like to be able to control the mind. <laughs> hey, can you just quiet down on stage a little bit? It's a little noisy for me. Yeah. I like going to, uh, I like big band. Live performance of a big orchestra and yeah. old stuff. Like, and you don't really have touring big bands anymore. So like not classical music, but more like brass instruments yeah. and stuff like horns, that. Yeah. Horns. So, okay, I'll show my age. 
and I was listening to the other day, is uh, I would go see an Earth, Wind, and Fire concert in a heartbeat. You are showing your age. <laughs> <laughs> and I love because they've got they've got a big brass. Are they still touring? No, I don't okay. think so. <laughs> I can't imagine. Um, but it's yeah. So I, I but that's that type of music. I grew up playing classical piano, so I have huge interest <clears throat> in classical music. Our, our the gentleman who was taking us to and from the hotel. Yeah had this spectacular Gershwin just playing on the radio yesterday on, on the ride over. And I said to engage him on a conversation. Little John Philip Sousa, maybe while they're at I'm it. Not so much the dad yeah, Not so the much. marches. Not the marches. Okay. George Gershwin, that was the, it was spectacular. What, what guilty pleasure movie? What's the movie that you shouldn't like and you're not necessarily happy to admit, although maybe you would be fine with it, but you will watch anytime it comes on, even though it's not sort of a popular hit. <laughs> I watched it the other day for a second time. Um, it's this animated uh, Sing. Yes. And they yes. come out now with Sing 2. Yes, it just came out. I had to watch recently. Sing 2 because Neka Sutterstrom says you kind of watch it, it's the best. And uh, she was right. It was, it was spectacular. So it's a, it's a, it's a feel good comedy. You have a, you have a son, but he's 17. Oh, he doesn't want to watch that. Yeah. <laughs> I want to watch it. You're just watching it for you. <laughs> I love that. All right, last one. Um, What's your comfort food? What food just makes you happy? may not be the healthiest, but it just gives you joy when you're sitting down to eat it. Pasta. Any kind or like with a particular sauce? Uh, with, a, with a good bolognese sauce. Nice. Do you make this yourself? Are you a, are you a cook? Uh, I do like to cook. I, I've not made it as well as my sister and my mother can make it, but I want to learn. Yeah. Um, it's all about, it's the key is the milk. You gotta use whole milk and it's the right way to cook it so it doesn't, it's, it's, it's a little it. tricky. I feel like I would burn it. It's a little I, tricky, yeah. it's a little intimidating, but I'm committed, I wanna get it down. You've always been committed. Jack, <laughs> thank you A for everything you've done for us. And thanks for meeting with me today. I really